You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. We're continuing on our Luke series uh, today and last week. Andy Wood did an awesome job kind of leading us through this passage where Jesus is going to talk about who he is and what it means for us to follow him. And today's passage, we'll see a Jesus who cares for our needs and is present and an assurance that we can trust Jesus in our troubles. I remember in college, I had an old car that I bought for $3,200. And it was quite the deal, I'll tell you. But, but needless to say, as you'd expect, the car that's has, that was bought for $3,200, this car came with a lot of problems, right? And uh, it had over 200,000 miles. I always tell Tiff it's the best car I've ever had. Maybe it's a little bit of nostalgia. I don't know. But I remember driving this car and over and over again on the days when you needed it the most, it would decide not to turn on. It would be 20 degrees outside. I'm freezing. And this car would decide not to turn on. And I quickly figured out this car can't be trusted. I can't take this thing on trips. I can't go around town. The best place that left me stranded at one time was Costco. There was pizza, so I was happy. Talk about comfort food, right? But one day, this car, actually, I got in an accident, and this car was totaled. And just like many times I had fixed the car, I thought, surely this car can be fixed. Surely in a couple of days, they'll give it back to me, and I'll be able to put the parts together and get this car running again. Um, but two days later, I was, actually, um, I was actually updated that the car was totaled. And as insignificant as it, seem, as it seemed at that time, uh, it seemed like a catastrophe. My world was collapsing. My little car ha- I had driven for five years and had repaired every single part of was now dead. And that car that served me so well, and at least in my head, maybe not Tiff's, was now dead. It was irreversible. It couldn't be fixed. I couldn't drive it anymore. And I say this because today we'll kind of be seeing a story that's similar. A time where there's something that's happened that's irreversible. Something that's happened in the, in the lives of these people that will require that they have a level of faith that is unusual. And as we've been studying these events in the, in the book of Luke, what we see is that Jesus not only has a power over the spiritual realm, but he also has power over the physical realm. And we see him calming the storm in the lake as his disciples are freaking out, right? We see him healing people left and right. We see him multiplying the fish and the bread for the 5,000. Next week, we'll see Jesus talking to the demons and the pigs and figuring that out too, right? Jesus is on the roll. And the story today is no different. What we see in this passage is a story of two people, two people who are coming to Jesus in desperate need and we see that just as he calmed the storm in the middle of the lake he's also going to calm the storm of their lives and the most interesting part about this story isn't the miracles as cool as those are that Jesus can do but what's beautiful about this story is that Jesus isn't interested in just healing them but he's interested in restoring them into community 
See, Jesus isn't interested in just healing us or fixing our problems as someone on Instagram would who goes out and gives money or tries to solve a problem or cuts someone's lawn and they go, it's awesome. And then they get likes, right? That's not Jesus. Jesus is interested in meeting their physical needs. He's interested in restoring them. And the beautiful truth for us today, church, is that we can trust Jesus in our troubles and even our death. We can trust Jesus in our troubles and even our death. See, what we see today in these people who are coming to Jesus in great desperation, perhaps they've heard about the miracles of Jesus before. They've seen what he's done. They've heard of what he's been doing. But in both of these cases, they exemplify a type of faith that is not usual, a type of faith that requires a new level of trust in Jesus. See a faith being displayed that leads them to hold on to Jesus as hard as they can. So I hope today's passage will help us to be challenged in the way we think about our trust in Jesus, but also serve as an invitation, an invitation to rest in the arms of our loving Father who cares for us and is making all things new. So we pick up in verse 40 where Jesus is now returning from restoring a man who was demon-possessed. And he's now going to find himself again surrounded by people. And we see that Jesus cares for our needs. Look with me at these verses. We see that Jesus has crossed the lake now and is in a different part of town. And we see a bunch of people coming and waiting for him. And the text tells us that he was almost crushed. How that happened, I don't know. And there, Jesus is going to encounter uh, two people who are specifically in desperate need of him. And the first person he encounters is actually a, a man by the name Jairus. And he's coming to Jesus because his daughter is ill. She's very sick. And Jairus would have been considered kind of the overseer over the synagogue, which was no small task at that time. He would have been a very well-respected man in the community. He would have had quite a bit of power as a Jewish ruler. And what we see is that as soon as he gets to Jesus, he falls at Jesus' feet. And that's, to be quite frank, not exactly how you'd expect a Jewish ruler to encounter Jesus. Text doesn't tell us how long his daughter's been sick. It doesn't tell us even what her sickness was, but it does tell us that his daughter is dying. Now you can imagine a man who probably had a lot of connections in the city, a man who probably had the means to be able to seek help and seek doctors, a man who would have had the power to kind of put things into place so that his daughter could be cared for. But now he's exhausted all of his options and he's coming to Jesus. And the only thing he can figure out to do is to lay at the feet of Jesus. I can remember a time when Lila was starting to walk and I'm in my office sitting down, sending emails and I hear a, a big scream, right? And the, in the front room, and this isn't her usual screen of like, I want snacks, you know? This is uh, her screaming because she's in pain. And so I, I come out and I say, what's going on? And Tiff's got her in her arms and we realize she's in pain. 
And when we look and we're trying to examine her and see what's happening, we notice she's got a purple toe. And we panic. I mean, it's time to go to the hospital. Once again, my favorite place, safest place on earth. So we get in the car, we start driving all the way over to Children's, and we get to Children's, and now I'm like, I'm thinking in the whole car, I'm freaking out, she's screaming, my head is turning, and I'm thinking, I can convince them to make sure we get a room right away. I'm going to talk to them right at the front desk, be really nice, use all my negotiation skills, and we're going to get there. And it's going to happen. And that didn't happen. We ended up waiting just as everybody else because they're like, this is a toe, you know. And her toe's fine. It healed, and uh, she's got a working toe. But nonetheless, I was pretty freaked out. She's one. I have no, no clue how to fix this. And in case you're wondering, this guy doesn't have a toe problem. Toe problems seem pretty easy to fix, or at least doctors think so. I didn't. Um, but this man is coming to Jesus because he has a serious problem. His daughter is dying. And so he is desperate for Jesus' help as he's probably tried to seek help from other people, and nothing's worked so far. So he, he's pleading for mercy from the ultimate healer. And the second person we encounter is a woman. And what her name is, we don't know. Text doesn't tell us. However, what we do know is that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And just to help us kind of understand the gravity of this situation, a woman who would have been bleeding for 12 years would have been considered ceremonially unclean. And what that means for them is that this woman would have been isolated. This woman wouldn't have, wouldn't have had community. This woman would have had, wouldn't be able to come into close contact with others. And she would have had to live in the shadows for the rest of her life. Maybe perhaps that's why her name isn't mentioned. We don't, we don't know, but we know she spent at least a decade in pain and with a severe bleeding problem. We also see that there's no one who could heal her, the text tells us. And that means that this woman's life wouldn't have just been affected from a health standpoint, but her wealth standpoint as well. Right? She would have spent all of her money trying to figure out a solution to get back into community, to get back into her family, to be able to enjoy what the normal people would enjoy. And so her health has been hit, her wealth has been hit, and her family's gone. I mean, talk about one of the most desperate moments of your life. Everything's been stripped away from this woman. And in a desperate state, she comes to Jesus trying to find healing. And there are a couple things that I want us to notice here and to highlight is that Jesus isn't in a rush. Jesus comes back. He crosses the lake. He's, he meets Jairus. He falls at his feet, and Jesus says, let's go. And they start walking to Jairus' house. And as soon as they walk, they're interrupted, and Jesus stops and all of a sudden says, hey, somebody touched me. And you see the text tells us that Peter kind of goes, yeah, Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed, but 
there's a lot of people around here. I mean, we're being touched left and right here. There's a, a crowd of people that are crushing you, like candy crush type crushing, right? And Peter's highlighting, hey, what, what's going on, Jesus? Why, why are we stopping? But Jesus, again, takes time to care for a woman who was the outcast. He not only wants to care for Jairus, who was a respected man in the community, but he also wants to care for a woman that we don't even know her name. And so Jesus stops. And he asks who touched him. And the second thing is probably the more obvious one in this passage. And it's that they're coming to Jesus in a state of desperation. Both of them are. They're at the end of the rope. They're exhausted, all of their options. And now they're hoping that Jesus, this man who they heard has been doing miracles all over the place, can work a miracle in their life as well and show some compassion for their situation and heal them. And what we see in the following verses is that Jesus has power over disease and also death. The story of the woman continues. Look with me at verse 44. It says, she came up behind him and touched him, touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And Jesus says, who touched me? And when they all denied it, Peter said, master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, and I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that, they couldn't, that she could go no longer unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And when you read this at first glance, it kind of leaves you wondering what's going on. Because first the woman believes that if she comes to Jesus and simply touches his cloak, she's going to be healed. And just so you know, up until now, there is no record of people touching Jesus' clothes and them being healed. As awesome as that is, right? But this woman believes if she only gets close to the master and touches his cloak, she will be healed. And Peter, in Peter fashion, says, yo, Jesus, there's a lot of people. I don't know if you've noticed. But Jesus wants to take it a step further. Jesus doesn't only want to uh, heal her in that moment, but he wants to take it a step further, saying his power has gone out from him. And how this works or why Jesus decides to heal in this way is a mystery to us. However, what we do see is that this lady, this woman, falls at, the, at Jesus' feet just like Jairus would have a couple of moments ago. And in verse 49, we see that she's healed. See, Jesus isn't simply interested in healing this woman and moving on with this day. This isn't like, let's try to see how many miracles I can do during the day. Jesus isn't preoccupied with that. Jesus is interested in restoring this woman's dignity within the community and letting everyone know that she's been healed, but furthermore, emphasize the type of faith and putting her on display to say, hey, this is the type of faith that needs to be exercised to follow me. A faith that wasn't only public, but a faith that was risk-taking as this woman was probably trying to get through the crowd and shouldn't have been there because she was unclean. And now she's trying to get close to Jesus. Proving 
Once again, Jesus, he shows compassion on her and proves that he is Lord over disease and over all brokenness. Secondly, we see that after healing this woman, Jesus is actually interrupted by someone who's coming from uh, Jairus' home, letting him know that, they, that his daughter is dead. And if you read the text, immediately Jairus goes, hey, let's not bother him anymore. Let's not bother him anymore. Jesus, you can kind of go on and do your own thing. She's dead. There's nothing else to do. I need to mourn. See, G Jairus believed Jesus had the power to heal, but having power over death was a whole different ballgame. And Jesus immediately responds to Jairus, telling him, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Words of comfort. And the passage tells us that as they get home, People are mourning and wailing. See, at this time, it would have been customary to actually hire people to come to your funeral and cry and mourn. And Jesus gets there and says, yo, stop crying. Stop mourning. There's nothing to cry about. This, this girl is asleep. And you see the reaction of these people, probably the people who were there crying for a living, essentially saying, what is this guy talking about? And so they burst out laughing. They burst out laughing, thinking, hey, we know what the dead look like. And this girl is dead. So what is he talking about? But again, they're in for a surprise, and Jairus is too. In that Jesus says, my child, get up. And in the following verses, we read that, her spirit returned immediately, and at once she stood up. And I love kind of what Jesus does, because this is just another day in the life of Jesus, and he's not afraid. He's, this is, you know, business as usual. And so Jesus goes, hey, let's get this girl a meal. First thing he says after she's healed. Why? I don't know, but it's awesome, right? She's about to eat. And he's not surprised. But her parents are. The crowd is. Everyone is surprised. It says they were astonished. I was talking to Peter on Friday. We were texting about this passage specifically. And uh, Peter was pointing out how in Mark, actually, it says the language that is used, it says it was, they were astounded immediately, completely. I mean, this would have been a draw-dropping moment for this crowd and for her parents as Jesus is bringing people who are dead back to life. See, what Jairus isn't expecting is that Jesus would have power over death as well. And Jesus is trying to teach us that we can not only trust Jesus in our day-to-day -day when things seem to be going wrong, but we can trust Jesus when everything has failed. When it's all said and done and kind of our worst fears have become our reality, we can still trust Jesus. We can trust Jesus in our bad situations, and we can trust Jesus when things seem irreversible. And Jesus is using this to kind of increase Jairus' view of his power in that moment. 
And in the same way, Jesus oftentimes uses difficult times in our lives to help us understand and grow in our own understanding of Jesus' power in our life. And church, may I remind you this morning that Jesus isn't bothered by you. Jesus isn't bothered by your problems. He's not bothered by your troubles, as big or as small as they may look. <laughs> may be tempted to think that, but I want to encourage you to not lose hope. That we have a God who cares and a God who is tender and loving, waiting to hear a cry for mercy from us, his children, and show up not only in our troubles, but in our deepest fears. Lastly, what we see in this passage is that in Jesus, we have a new identity. See, in both of these stories, we have something extremely powerful that happens at the very end. And in the story of the woman, we see it as soon as she's healed, Jesus says these following words. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And if you read this quickly, you may miss it. But see, this woman has been suffering for 12 years. 12 years totally uh, isolated from community, totally isolated from her family. And Jesus is saying, hey, you are my daughter. Jesus not only shows compassion to her in healing her, but he calls her daughters to point to the reality that we as children of God enjoy, that when we are in Christ, we are made children, sons, daughters of the King. And so Jesus uses this powerful language to remind us that we aren't defined by whatever trouble we aren't defined by whatever is going on in our life, but that we have been brought into the family of God. See, identity is perhaps one of the things that we struggle the most with in our modern age. And I believe part of the reason we struggle with identity so much is because our entire way of life, our entire systems have been created in a way where we are forced to find our identity in the things we can accomplish or become. And so our identity becomes this thing we search and try to figure out as I search for what it is I have to do with my life and I try and figure out who I need to become. And we chase this false notion that if I only get this one thing or if I only become this one person, then I'll be happy. And for some, that plays out in finding identity in our wealth. Saying, if I can only accumulate as much as possible, then I will be somebody in the world. For others, it's, hey, if I can only become the best at my career, the best at this one thing that I do, then I'll have purpose and meaning. And for others, it turns into a struggle where we find a sense of identity, perhaps, in the things that we lack. We find a sense of identity Maybe in the sin that we've been trying to shake off for a long time. Or we find some sort of identity in our addiction that we simply can't get rid of. 
But Jesus is trying to point us to a new identity. But in both of these cases, when we talk about identity itself, what we're really saying is that we're either failing at achieving something or we are trying to succeed at achieving something. And a lot of the times what ends up happening is that our identity is driven by our own fear. Our fear of losing out on all the money we have, on our possessions, our fear of losing out on the things that we can do, on the things I'm really good at work, that if I only lose this career, then who will I be? And so it drives us to find an identity based out of fear. And so you can use this as a test. If there's something in your life that you find yourself identifying too closely with this, just ask, what's my fear? What's driving me to push so hard, to push to the point of exhaustion, to push to the point where I, I have to give it my all in order to make sure that I get this one thing? What's pushing me there? Because that fear is often what's driving you to this quest over identity. But that's not how identity works in Jesus. See, in Christianity, our identity isn't something that we achieve or something that we become or something that we can accomplish. Identity in Jesus is something that we receive as a gift. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are immediately brought into the family of God. We are justified and adopted into his family in an instant. And we're called sons and daughters. And here's the deal, church. When you're in the family of God, there is nothing you need to do to earn God's favor. There is nothing you can do to find this sense of better identity in Jesus because you've already been given it. You gain a father who delights in you as a loving father would in their children. And this means that as Christians, our quest for identity is over. We don't have to look for a new identity. That we can find our identity ultimately on the fact that we are sons and daughters of the king. In Romans 8, we read, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And it says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors in him who loved us so. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, no height, nor death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our hope. Church, that's the beautiful assurance that we enjoy in Jesus that no matter what we may be going through in our lives, no matter what may come our way, we have a hope that is unmovable on the rock. A greater hope than anything physical or any spiritual threat that may come into our lives. That no matter what you may be going through in your life, perhaps it's a broken relationship that you've asked God many times to be able to mend. Or maybe it's financial trouble where you don't know how we're going to pay the next bill. Or maybe it's a situation at work that's so heavy on you that every time you walk into your shift, you're miserable. 
no matter what that is, we have a God who cares. We have a God who is willing to listen and a God who ultimately holds power over the entire universe and can make a way in your life. Many of you are probably familiar with the hymn, It Is Well. And perhaps some of you already know the story of how this hymn came to be, but this hymn was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. And we know Horatio was a businessman in Chicago in the 1800s, and he writes a hymn in one of his darkest moments. We're told that he was a married man. He had five kids. His first one would die from pneumonia in 1871. But we're told that his family had to take a trip across the Atlantic. And for some reason, he had to stay home and attend some things with his business. But we're told that his family goes on. And they cross the, start crossing the Atlantic. His wife and his four kids, his four girls, and as they're on their way, the ship in which they're crossing collides with another ship. And as the water starts flooding the ship, all four girls, Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tania would drown. And when the news got to Horatio, the only thing he knows to do is to write. And he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Church, in, in Jesus, we not only have hope for our worst situations, but we have a hope in death. That if we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have a beautiful assurance that is greater than anything that can come our way. That just has Horatio writes, it is well with my soul. When his four daughters are drowning in the Atlantic Ocean, we are able to say, it is well with my soul when troubles come my way. That we have a confidence of a God who hears us, a confidence of a God who holds the power over the entire universe and is willing to meet us in our moments of desperation. And just like he heals the woman and brings Jairus' daughter back to life, in the same way and with the same power, Jesus watches over your life. That just like he cares for the lilies and the birds, he cares for his children. And so church, we can trust Jesus in our troubles because he cares. 